All right, sit down, sit down, sit down. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, City Lights. Hey, so glad to be here with you. My name's Glenn. I have the joy of uh, serving as one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're brand new with us this morning, a warm welcome to you. Our normal uh, priority as a church is to preach through books of the Bible. We believe it is God's holy word revealed to us uh, by the Holy Spirit from heaven. And so why not put a lot of our time together on Sunday mornings to opening its pages and hearing what God has to teach us and show us. So uh, right now we're in the middle of a sermon series in the book of James that we just started last week. So if you brought your Bible with me or with you, I want to invite you to go to James 2. James chapter 2. James was the little brother of Jesus. He was a leader and pastor of the first uh, Christian community after the resurrection of Jesus. His audience was mostly Jews who had been scattered and were being persecuted for their faith, but they uh, had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So they were known as Messianic Jews. And this letter, this, this book in your Bible, James, these five chapters are bursting with practicality. Uh, it's really a book that just serves to say, hey, this is what the Christian life looks like. Um, within this book are housed, uh, I think, 12 different kind of mini teachings uh, that describe wise Christian living. And it really gets its echoes, and it makes sense because of the author, from Jesus in his famous uh, prominent Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And then also from the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of Proverbs. And so by way of introduction, I wanted to ask a question. I, I wonder if you've ever thought about the topic, assurance of salvation. Uh, if you don't know what that is, you've never heard that before, it's, it's, it's really asking a lot of questions like this. Do you know without a doubt that you're saved? If you were to die today, do you know that you wouldn't see hell? Do you know that you would be in heaven? Do you know that you belong to God? That you really are united to Jesus and he won't let you go? Do you know that you're right with him, that your sins have been forgiven, that you're cleansed and, and righteous in his sight? Do you know that you have been born all over again and that the spirit of the living God dwells in you? If you're asking these questions, you are seeking assurance of salvation. You're wanting to just know, are me and God okay? <laughs> like, when my earthly life is over, what is next? And am I confident? Do I have hope? Do I have confirmation of what's to come? Um, let me read the first verse of our text this morning to just dive headfirst into what we're going to discover. It's in James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. It's the second half of the chapter. Here's what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Let me just read that again, and I want us to take this in. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
This is the rhetorical question that James will speak to in the next 12 verses, and he's opening up really a can of worms that is this. Does every brand of faith save a person? Uh, Are there types of faith that don't save? Is there a kind of faith that does not make a person right with God? Now, what I appreciate in the text, and we're going to pray before we dive into it, is that Along the way, James anticipates his reader's response. I mean, you read the first verse, verse 14, right? You could imagine that that would drum up a lot of questions. And a lot of our church history has been split over the divide of faith and works. And is salvation achieved by what we do or is salvation achieved by what God does on our behalf? Uh, Is there some kind of mix there? Is it 100%, 99%, 1%? This is a good endeavor to study this and to to get a grasp of this. But what I want to do this morning is I want to let James speak for himself. I want to let the Word of God and the text of Scripture speak for itself and just take us where it's going to take us. And so I want to pray, and then I want to invite each of us to listen and take inventory, examine the own state of our faith. What kind of faith do we have as we come in here this morning? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. I am so grateful as only a man to stand in this pulpit and know, God, that your promise is to purpose your word for what you will. And your promise is that what you send it out to accomplish, it will accomplish and it will not return void. This morning, um, the application of a text like this is as varied as the people in this room, and I'm asking God to bring wisdom. Holy Spirit, rest on us with illumination. Rest on us with insight. Make the change that needs to happen in our hearts personal and powerful for each of us. God, have your way here. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, um, James is going to give us four illustrations over the course of these 12 verses, and he's going to do that because he wants us to just get it. He wanted his original audience to just get it. Let me just show you four different stories, and you tell me what you think of of what I'm going to show to you. And so, he begins in verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good or what benefit is that? It's implied in this little illustration that James gives right here that the the person who's seeing somebody else in need is not ignorant to the need that's right in front of them. It's implied that they know the need, they, they can see it, they, they, they know what would meet the need, right? They're not blind or it's happening somewhere else or, I mean, it's right in front of them. And he's saying, what good is your faith if you say to that person, go in peace? Go, go in peace, those words, by the way, are a common uh, biblical blessing for someone. It really means may God go with you. May God go with you. And so I think the issue that that James is bringing up, the problem that he's trying to press in to his audience, and the problem for us today, is when may God go with you 
replaces, I will go with you. It's the, the 21st century version of this is, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll pray for you. With no prayer, first of all, that actually happens, and second of all, no actionable love that happens in, with the opportunity given. Do you all, are you all tracking with me? It's very simple and, and intuitive. Uh, 2,000 years ago, they were calling this stuff out. <laughs> I love that. 2,000 years ago, they were saying the same thing that, that the word is speaking to us today. God sees right through that. That, that comes across as, as, as kind of fake and gross when people born again of the Spirit of God, Christians who are marked by love, would see someone in need, would see a person grieving, would see a, a friend, a neighbor, a brother or sister with tangible need and would not love, but say, go in peace, be warm and filled. What kind of good is that faith? And I think... Uh, you know, kind of under the surface, James is, is arguing for us to think about the legitimacy of that faith. Is that faith real? Is that saving faith, if that's the normal mode of operation for a person's life? James uses this illustration to make a statement about that kind, that type of faith. And he says it in verse 17, and he, he doesn't pull any punches. So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. What a statement. Excuse me, church, are we hearing this? That kind of faith is what? Dead. It's gone. It's lifeless. It's useless. He's talking to people who are looking not for assurance of salvation, but insurance of salvation. Uh, what is the, the, the bare minimum, really, that I can do to make sure that I'm, I'm right with God and now I'm going to go on and, and live my life and not worry about the kind of faith that I possess? He's inviting us into self-examination. And now, I love this. In verse 18, James is essentially saying, I know what you're going to say. Have you all ever been in an argument with somebody and you make a statement that is really strong and immediately you know what the other party is going to say back to you? So you, you cut them off and say, now I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Hold on. Let me fill in what you're going to say. This is what James does right here in our text in verse 18. He says, but someone will say, this is a, you know, hypothetical person, you have faith and I have works. I'm going to stop right there. This is someone saying, you know what? It's relative to each their own. You have faith. You feel it. I have works. You know, I live it. Um, that's good, right? That's okay. We, we can all kind of have what we choose, and James is going to continue in the second part of the verse to say, show me your faith apart from your works. I'm going to stop at that comma. Think about that. Show me your faith apart from your works. Right now, in this room, we are not Christians by virtue of sitting in these seats. We're not Christians by virtue of just saying, I'm a Christian. Each of us, if we were to look at one another and look in the mirror and ask the common sense question, is that a Christian that I see 
What is the thing that's going to answer that question? It's how a person lives. It's how a person speaks from the attitude of their heart. It's how peaceful someone is. It's how generous someone is. It's how tender-hearted and patient someone is. It's how compassionate someone is. And it's measured not just by the way someone feels, but by what they do. He says, show me your, your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. I find that to be such a comforting text because here's what James is, is saying. He's saying, I already have faith. It's, I'm secure. I have faith. I, I, I know who Jesus is. I believe in him. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But he's saying, my life will show you that it is not dead faith. It's saving faith. It's real, true faith. And he's going to employ another illustration. And again, it's, it's harsh. Verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. And look at this next sentence. Even the demons believe and shudder. He's saying, great. You say, I believe. Great. So do Satan and demons. At least they have fear and terror before God. He's saying this is head faith. This is demonic faith. This is faith that says the same thing that a demon could say. I know who God is. I know who Yahweh is. I know who Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is. I, I actually agree with everything that God says he is. He is who he says he is. We can say that. But James is pressing in and saying, you're on the same tier as a, as a demon if you merely just say, I agree with these things the same way that a demon does. Because what does it not produce in a demon? Good works. I'm gonna continue with a third illustration, right? So the first one, person in need right in front of you. Go in peace, be warm and well-fed. Nothing to follow that up. The second one, you believe the same doctrines that a demon would agree to. You agree intellectually, you have a demon's faith. There's a dead faith, there's a demon's faith. Illustration number three, he's going to now take us back into the Old Testament. And verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Clearly there's a problem in the audience that James is writing to. That faith apart from works is useless. Was it not Abraham, our father? This is a huge name. Huge name to drop. The human name to drop in a conversation amongst Jewish Hebrew people. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Does that rattle you a little bit? Even the word in the ESV here, Abraham was justified by his works. Does that sound contrary to what we all claim to believe? That we're not justified by our works. We're justified by our faith and our belief and our trust in someone else's work, right? 
Here's really good news. The word justified here, it's not really used in a legal theological sense. Um, The original language here, it's not saying that what Abraham did made him right with God. It's used here in a practical sense. It means it validated or it vindicated or it proved right. The saving faith that God counted to Abraham was proved right in his obedience. Let me take you back to the story. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. We just preached through this book, right? So if you've forgotten, I'm praying for you, okay? We just preached. So, so Genesis chapter 12, uh, God calls Abram, was his name, and he says, I'm going to make you a father of, of many people, um, in particular the, the, the nation of Israel. And through your family, I will bring blessing and, and your family will bless all the families of the earth. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. In Genesis chapter 15, way before Abraham's son Isaac was ever even born, way before, way before. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 tells us that exactly what James references here, Abraham believed God. He believed God. He had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham was already justified before God, long before the issue ever came up with God calling him to sacrifice his son. So what we get in this story is really a picture of Abraham demonstrating what kind of faith he has. He's demonstrating the trust that he claims in God by willing to actually do something, by willing to actually live according to it. And that's what James is pointing to. He's saying, your works don't earn you anything before God. Your works just demonstrate the kind of faith that you have in God. Illustration number four, I want to move through this quickly, is Rahab. Um, Verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. This is a really wild story in the Old Testament. It's in Joshua chapter 2. I just want to read it to you. Joshua is the, the man um, who took the mantle from Moses uh, for the Israelite people. And they, Israel is getting ready to um, overtake Jericho. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly as spies saying, and I'm sorry, it's not up on the screen, so you just have to listen, bear with me. Two spies, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And so the king of Jericho, he sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said to the king, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So the guards rush off. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And listen to this, listen to this. Before the spies lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, 
I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, listen to this, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That right there, my friends, is a profession of faith. Sure sounds like faith. Dang. But what makes her faith genuine is what she actually did to save those men out of fear and belief in Yahweh. She demonstrated that faith through the choices, the life that she was willing to live. And so why is James so adamant about this in this particular letter to these Messianic Jews? A lot of it has to do with context. If you stop and put yourself in the shoes of his Jewish audience, for a long time they were trapped, it felt like, in in ritual. They were trapped in a tradition treadmill And there was a constant burden, a constant fear, a constant grade of guilt and shame that was never to be released. And someone came along and preached the gospel to them. Someone came along and said, hey, all those promises made in the Old Testament of a Savior to come, it's happened. Someone came along to them and told them, God has made covenants and man has failed his part of the bargain over and over again. And so God himself in love, took on flesh, and he came in the form of Jesus Christ. And these people are hearing this. Church, can you imagine? It's hard to put ourselves in their shoes, isn't it? These people are hearing this, and they're, they're finally feeling freed from all of this, and freed from having no assurance of where they stand with God. And I, I just want to be a voice that says, This is actually true of us today in many streams of our Christian faith. Some of us grew up Catholic. At the Council of Trent in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church denied that it is possible for a person to have assurance of salvation except in rare circumstances. Someone maybe who is an exceptional saint Um, over the course of their life can possibly rise to this assurance, usually through some kind of special revelation from God. But the average member of the church can't expect to have assurance of salvation, assurance of being reunited to God, held by God, kept by God, safe with God. And Rome claims that ultimately it's, it's based on opinions, and ideas that come from the hearts of people. And what do the scriptures tell us about the hearts of people after all? In Jeremiah 17, 9, it's deceitful above all things. So, says Rome, it's easy to deceive ourselves and to rest our confidence about the state of our souls on speculation. Some of us here grew up in really strict religious households that held our status with God over our head and demanded penance and constant rededicating of our life to him and fear of of losing something we thought we once had, maybe losing his love, losing his blessing. And, and, And be honest, some of us, we still live in that doubt today. 
still others of us in the room don't have a church background and are not yet Christians. And we have a view of God that just naturally drifts to this idea. It's like this. If pressed about my security with God and where I stand with Him, you know, as long as the good works outweigh the bad in my life when it's all said and done, I'm relatively good. I'll get to enter the kingdom of heaven. For most of us, um, so much of our life has been really presenting our record of performance in order to validate our acceptance. Think about your life. When you've, uh, when you've interviewed for the job or the degree program, when you've tried to qualify for a home loan or you get your kids accepted in a school or a daycare, when you've auditioned for the part of, you've tried out for the team, when you've dated someone and they want to get to know you, when you've gone to the family reunions and you've rehearsed the good updates that you're going to give on your life, when you've moved into the new neighborhood, when you, your kids have joined the new league. Listen, it's deeply ingrained in us. So much so that we haul it into our relationship with God and our activity in the church. And because of the real sin and deception that exists in us, we're prone to self-worship. We would never say it out loud. But we all do it. We associate our Christian activity and our disciplines and our persona and our words with a sense of self-earned acceptance. And it works out like this. Some weeks I feel great. Others, I feel shame. Some weeks, I feel close to God. Others, I feel far from Him. Some weeks, I trust God. Others, I doubt. Some weeks, I'm at peace and I'm secure in my relationship with Him. There's, there's no gap between us. And other weeks, I'm fearful of where I really, actually stand with Him. Some weeks, I'm content and I'm strong in my identity. In other weeks, I'm desperate to prove my worth and value. Some weeks, what Jesus Christ accomplished is finished and final. And some weeks, his life and death only got me in. But I need to figure out how to stay in. What's happened here? Why this roller coaster experience of assurance? Here it is. The lie of self-earned Assurance will always breed the lie of self-lost assurance. If we can't rest in God's grace, we'll never escape the feeling that he disapproves of us. Our eternity hangs in the balance. He's ashamed of us, or that our faith will be proved dead or demonic one day. This is not the good news that Jesus brings. This is not the good news that Jesus brings to us. Let me tell you his story. Let me tell you Jesus' story. He would live without fault. He was kind and selfless and honorable, and he loved people instead of objectifying them. He responded to anger and hate with patience and wisdom. He was always concerned with the needs of others before his own. He never uttered a lie or manipulated anyone. He was holy and he was good in every sense. Do you know what Jesus was? Innocent in God's sight. Without sin in God's sight. Not even a speck. And he stands alone in that category as human beings who've walked on the earth. And before God's judgment, Jesus was righteous. And although he was God in the flesh, he was fully man which enabled him to live as our substitute. He was the only person to ever walk planet Earth 
who could stand in our place having lived the life that you and I cannot live. And even if we passionately committed ourselves right now, today, to stop sinning, which is impossible, our lives are still marred by our past sin. Jesus himself substitutes in front of us and offers to God a life that meets God's mark. And not only is Jesus our substitute in life, Jesus is our substitute in death. It was Jesus who fell under God's wrath and his judgment on the cross where you and I belong. It was Jesus who offered himself as a sacrifice to atone, to pay for, to cover the debt of our sin, to forgive us of it, and to make us righteous in God's eyes. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You want to know the whole goal of God, the whole message of the Christian faith is captured in three words, God with us. Sin separated us. Sin brought death. God wants you. He wants me. And he has gone to every length, even to the point of death, God dying for our sake to make it so that we could have relationship with him. To demonstrate his love, he delivered to his son what is owed to you and me so that he could give to you and I what is actually owed to Jesus. Can anybody say amen? Amen. Can anybody say hallelujah? hallelujah? This is good news. And how can a person be declared innocent in God's sight? How can a person be justified, made right with God? It is by believing, trusting in, and loving Jesus and the work that he has finished. Author Jeremy Pierre says, if the Christian life were charted on a map, the starting point would be labeled, God loves you. The blue line tracing the path from that point would turn and curve and eventually arch its way back to the very same point. The Christian journey is a long, difficult path back to the place you started, the place that you realize, despite your sin, God loves you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Amen? But church, what does the next verse say? The next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The saying goes like this, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves, But the faith, the kind, the type of of faith that saves is never 
alone. This is what Jesus is calling us to in Matthew chapter five. If you wanna hear his voice, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, you and I, if we've given our life to Jesus, we've transferred ownership of our life to him, we've believed in his death and his resurrection, we possess a light. The love of Jesus has been shed abroad in our hearts, it's been poured into us. We know the truth, we see the world differently than we used to see it. We've been filled and indwelled by God the Spirit. And this ought to shine outwardly when something so profound has happened inwardly. Where a heart has been replaced, where a mind has been renewed, where a peace has been restored, where a love and a compassion has been inserted by the presence of God himself within us, there ought to be change. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Charles Spurgeon is reported to have had that quote. And so I want to round us down here and and, um, I want to just ask church, isn't this intuitive? Isn't everything that we're talking about here, we don't necessarily have to plumb theological depths just to, to have a logical understanding of this, do we not? True faith is, it's like radio waves, We don't see radio waves, but you're listening to depressing Nebraska sports radio in your car. Radio waves are real, okay? It's like like our Wi-Fi at our house, okay? You don't see them, the waves around your house, but you're streaming the Golden Bachelor. I know it, okay? It proves that it's there. You don't see the roots of a peach tree, but guess what? How do you know they're there? Peaches, if Jesus Christ, if the living God has made his home in us, we will produce Christ-likeness. By God's grace, we will, Galatians 5, have more love, joy, peace, patience, repeat that one, patience, (laughs) kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, um, here's why I'm so encouraged as I land the plane. I look across our church, City Light, and I see evidence of saving faith all around me. I just want to build you up. There are people here in our church who love Jesus, and it is so evidenced just by who you are. It's evidenced by your love for other people. It's evidenced by how you endure suffering and trials. It's evidenced by how eager you are to intercede and pray and petition heaven on behalf of other people. It's evidenced by your faithfulness when you put your hand to a plow and you know God's put you there and you have a responsibility to work unto him. You keep going. It's evidenced by repentance. It's evidenced by a sensitivity to sin and a turning from it toward God. It's evidenced by a dissatisfaction with the things of the world and all the streams that flow in our culture and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I see it all around me. I'm so encouraged by that. 
One of the things in scripture that's so encouraging is in Matthew 13. It says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed, bear, he indeed bears fruit and he yields. But listen to this. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. The amount of fruit in all of our lives is going to vary. Okay, let's just, let's admit it. Like every born again Christian will bear fruit, period, but some will bear more or less than others and in differing ways. It's so inspiring to have a front row seat right here. I hope it is to you if you're in a city group, if you're in a huddle, if you come here on Sunday mornings and you witness the the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I hope that it shows you and it demonstrates to you there is saving faith in this church. But here's the thing. The rest of James, the rest of this book is gonna challenge us to examine ourselves. It's gonna bring us into a place where we're not allowed to just say, sure, I agree with some Christian truth, but I'm gonna live my life. (laughs) I'm, I'm gonna still rival God in my life and I'll be God of my life and I'll make all the decisions and I'll be Lord of my life. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize about this, this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? In, in Psalm 139, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Listen, we, we need to know the difference between being justified declared innocent, the debt is paid by Jesus, we're saved, and being sanctified. A person who's being made more and more like Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. This is the call. So when you read the rest of this book, I encourage you, read it. Read it over and over again. You're going to see a lot of different ways that James presses in and says, this is how a Christian lives. The next text we're in next week is taming the tongue. Enough said, pun intended, okay? Like, taming the tongue. Like, what we say is gonna represent a lot of what's within us. Jesus himself says, it's what's within that defiles us. Like, your heart, your mouth speaks out of the overflow of your heart, and God is after your heart. He wants to change your heart. And that changed heart will bring a changed life. Um, If you were to ask me right now, Glenn, Do you love Jesus perfectly? Perfectly. What do you think my answer would be? No, as would yours. Glenn, do you love Jesus as you ought to? Well, if I don't love Jesus perfectly, I'm not loving him as I ought to. So the answer to that one is also no. And therein lies the tension. But if you asked me, Glenn, do you love Jesus at all? The fact that I would answer you genuinely, yes, shows evidence that regeneration has happened within me. A heart that has not been renewed by the Holy Spirit does not have a love and an affection and a hunger for God. It cannot. What a comfort that if you're in this room and you're asking questions about assurance of salvation, the fact that you are asking those questions can be a great sign that someone is within you changing you. 
and making you want closeness and intimacy with God. That's a good sign. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for your word. Please apply it as you will, Holy Spirit. Right now, we are making ourselves available to you. God, I'm praying right now for each person in here that we would examine the fruit of our lives and get excited to live out our faith in you. So many ways it can be demonstrated. Jesus, we praise you. We lift you high. We exalt you. We magnify you. We are a Jesus-centered church. We love you. You're our shepherd, our chief shepherd. Thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured shame. You endured suffering at the cross so that you might bring us back to you, God. Wow. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Father, I ask for the person in the room right now who has not yet given their faith, their life, their trust to you wholly and completely. Oh God, would there be no more delaying? Would the cry of their heart be, I'm tired of trying to do life alone? God, I recognize my sin against you. I recognize I've not lived up to your standard. I've recognized that I'm estranged from you. I want to be made right with you. I want to have an ongoing interactive relationship with you. I want to be safe in your arms, God. I want to be home where I belong and I've been far from. And I believe and trust that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I believe and I trust that Jesus rose again and is indeed God and has authority to forgive my sin to wash me clean and to give his righteousness to me and make me holy in your sight. I believe right now that God, you're a better leader of my life than I could ever be. I give you my life. I transfer all ownership of my life to you. God, you're more wise. You're more knowing. You're more trustworthy than I am. I'm done living my life under my lordship I repent and I give it to you in Jesus' name, amen.